All right. Wow. Huh. Um, thank you, Dave. Remind me never to watch uh, the trial. <laughs> that was amazing. Okay, well, I know we've been sitting for a little while now, so I'll try to uh, get to um, what I'm trying to say. I'll, I'll just speak semi-briefly, and hopefully we can get to watch uh, a little more Seinfeld uh, this morning. So one of the things I said uh, last night in my little introductory remarks to Paul's uh, uh, talks was that the... Um, primary conviction behind a lot of what we do in Mockingbird is the idea that uh, there is no distinction between Christian reality and reality. That reality is what it is. And if you want to have any shot of reaching anyone, uh, especially yourself, you need to engage with it as it actually is, not how you'd like it to be, not about who you would like yourself to be. And that what we find if we're really willing to go there and accept what it is like to be a human being, what you and I are actually like, and what the world is actually like, then we find that in fact not only does the Bible and the Christian faith address those things, the realities of everyday life that we talk about, but that they are the fundamental concerns of God. And one of the, the, the aspect I want to highlight this morning which has been very encouraging to me in all of the writing uh, and projects that we've done this past year, is the idea of self-justification that lies beneath an enormous amount of human enterprise and relational strife and exhaustion. Uh, When I talk about self-justification, I'm talking about the murmur, actually the engine that drives scorekeeping. To what end are we scorekeeping? What is the, you know, we, we talk about getting the approval of our neighbors, winning love of our spouse, the, the approval of God. And um, there's, uh, all of that is self-justification. We saw in the Modern Family clip last night about a woman in, a, in a, Claire Dunphy who has to be right in every case. And my wife lives with one of those people. It's exhausting to be around those people. And as you see, she's driven, she, she, she places this enormous wedge between herself and the rest of her family who are constantly feeling attacked and scrutinized uh, by every accusation that she always has to be right. So self-justification, being, the, uh, uh, being a sort of a, a poisonous reality that all of us suffer under, not an uh, abstract theological concept. When we talk about justification by grace through faith, that is actually not, um, it sounds abstract, it sounds, oh, you're talking about the 16th century again. But what we find, in, in, you know, and this always plays out in relationships the most clearly, is that um, self-justification is the way of the world, and it's the way of you and me. That we're constantly fighting our corner. It could be, as Paul says, that our corner is one of condemnation, that we have a negative view of ourselves, and so everything has to be filtered through that. Or it could be that we have a positive view of ourselves, and everything has to be filtered through that. Okay, backtrack just one second. The, uh, when I, what I find so uh, encouraging about the looking at sort of non-Christian sources 
and you see this on the website, we almost all only exclusively look at non-Christian sources for sort of confirmation of what we're talking about. What we, what we, I find that extremely encouraging because it says reality is reality. And two of the things, the other thing besides self-justification that I found so deeply um, not discouraging, but um, affirming this past year, is the uh, reconceptualized understanding of human nature uh, that David Brooks has been talking about. Maybe you read The Social Animal and put partisan stuff aside. I know he's, had, he's said things about politics that people disagree with. But what this man has been on a crusade to do is to essentially say that you and I have limitations and that we are primarily emotional creatures. That uh, the, the, um, the French Re- Enlightenment was wrong in saying that reason is, go- is, 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 is what we are striving toward. But the British Enlightenment that said that reason and emotion kind of work together is a more important paradigm. And I think that this idea that you and I are driven more by emotion than by intellect, that we are more heart than head, in fact, is an enormously compassionate view. It allows you to have compassion on others and yourself. Brooks says it this way. He says, we have a prevailing view in our society that we are divided creatures. Reason, which is trustworthy, is separate from the emotions, which are suspect. Society progresses to the extent that reason can suppress the passions. This has created a distortion in our culture. We emphasize things that are rational and conscious and are inarticulate about the processes down below. We are really good at talking about material things, but bad about talking about emotion. And I would say that that's just as true for the church. At least the Protestant, uh, historical, you know, uh, mainline expression of it. He goes on to say, he says, emotion is not opposed to reason. Reason is nestled upon emotion and dependent on it. Emily Dickinson says the same thing this way. She said, the mind lives on the heart like any parasite. If that is full of meat, the mind is fat. The mind lives on the heart like any parasite. Philip Melanchthon, the reformer who was friends so great, friends with Martin Luther, he put it this way, that the inner attitudes of the human heart are determined by the will's direction, which then has power over the other faculty of reason. That the passions of the heart are what ultimately determine human conduct. An affection could only be then overcome by a more vehement affection. This is what theologians call a bondage of the will is what I'm talking about. If we can understand that we are driven more by emotion than by reason, more by our hearts than by our heads, then maybe you can understand why people are so bad at reasoning sometimes and so good at it other times. Why people do all the foolish self-justifying things they do. This dovetails with another discovery that uh, we we talk about on the website. That reason, that the intellect, the mind, you might be saying right now, you're you're being awfully cerebral, but uh, it's ironic, that reasoning is is actually not, is, is not a matter of finding truth. That we reason in order to win arguments. This is called the argumentative theory of reasoning. And it's one of the most fascinating 
uh, things that I've ever seen on the internet, and it's, I guess it's like it's getting widespread uh, um, agreement among scholars. These are sort of evolutionary biologists and psychologists, so what, but whatever you think about that, they believe that you and I reason in order to win arguments. We're not looking for reasons why what we believe is wrong, we're looking for reasons why it's right, and that is what self-justification is. This is also what confirmation bias is, that we know what we believe and we look for reasons why it's true. You know what you think your husband or wife is like. You are just like your mother, and therefore you're acting this way. And you ignore all the ways in which she's not like her mother. Because it's much easier to have the understanding that she is. So when we have an idea, we start to reason about that idea, and we always find arguments in support of it. Which is just another way of saying that we are compulsively, addictively driven by the need for self-justification. To be right. To be right about the positives, to be right about the negatives. Now that's awfully abstract. But what I'm saying is that our desire to keep score is all about our, it's indicative of our original sin, that human beings are trying to be autonomous, and that they, so they're constantly keeping score. I thought it would be interesting to remind you that this is the highest registration Mockingbird has ever had at an event. <laughs> we had a record-breaking uh, traffic on the website this past week. A lot, of, a lot of people are interested in Tim Tebow, it turns out. <laughs> and um, we are all addicted to scorekeeping because we are all addicted to self-justification. We are all it, it turned in on ourselves. We are all looking for arguments to support what we already believe. As Camus you know, observed, that human beings are creatures who spend their lives trying to convince themselves that existence is not absurd. And that's not an intellectual pursuit, it's an emotional pursuit. Okay. Seinfeld. <clears throat> Seinfeld is a show that is not... You know what's funny about Seinfeld? There's a lot that's funny about Seinfeld, but it, uh, it is not dated in its humor. It is dated in the fashion. I mean, Jerry's ridiculous haircut and the, the constant turtlenecks. You, know, you just don't see turtlenecks and jeans done very often anymore. <laughs> Or Elaine's sort of shoulder pads and big, thing, big uh, you know, blazers that she would wear. But what hasn't dated and what will never date about the show is that it, 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 it's the depiction of you and me as people who are constantly shooting ourselves in the foot in a, an effort to self-justify. This plays out in terms of their choice of sort of date, who they date constantly. We find reasons why, once we decide we don't like a person, then we find reasons why to break up with them. And Jerry has, can find an, an, in anyone a reason to break up. The, the, the anthropology of Seinfeld is rock bottom. It's nihilistic, in fact. But that's what makes it so, uh, so ripe for uh, <laughs> Mockingbird posts. They have this, they, you know, I, I've said it before, but they have this... Uh, incredible motto in Seinfeld, that there would be no uh, hugging and no learning. What does that say? 
Social scientists say that people who need to self-justify tend to look back on their past as worse than it actually was in order to uh, say that they're better now. There's this great experiment where they took a bunch of college uh, seniors and they they offered this course in uh, sort of SAT, not SAT prep, but like uh, LSAT prep, I think. And it was a total dummy course. Nothing was taught. It was, they, they designed it so that you would not improve in any way. But they took, you know, a hundred of these, these students. Fifty of them they actually took through the course, and the other fifty they put on a waiting list. Okay? Uh, at the end of the course, they had people evaluate, even though this, what, what was shown, that uh, they did not learn anything. They had themselves evaluate their, their, their study skills. The people who hadn't taken the class who'd been on the waiting list, they all said that their study skills were the exact same. Because they'd taken a, you know, they'd evaluated them at the beginning too. The people who had taken the course all misremembered how, what their study skills were like before they took this course. Essentially, before they took it, they said, my study skills are like this. And after they took the course, they said, actually, before this course, my my study skills were like this. Maybe you have to write it out, this experiment. But it is a very interesting way of saying that people revise what they had in order to improve what they they now have. And that Seinfeld shows that this illusion of growth... Growth happens, victory happens, God, you know, the Holy Spirit, people do experience healing. But in the Seinfeld universe, that, that is always limited, and it is therefore a remarkable uh, place of humor. It's what Paul was talking about last night in terms of the situation is hopeless, but not serious. So we're about to watch a clip that I'm... I'm, I'm I, want it, I, I think it illustrates very well what it looks like to self-justify and what it looks like to be driven by your emotions and to dress up your intellectual ideas uh, or to dress up your emotions with intellectual sort of scaffolding. And that's, of course, the, it revolves around the character of George Costanza. We're watching a, a clip um, in which Jerry starts dating a woman who is deaf but can read lips. You can just imagine what they do with that. Uh, but the self-justification is what I want you to pay attention to. Look for how it's permeating every single interaction we will see on screen. Okay. You are kidding. That is amazing! <laughs> I just took a car service for Morgan to get the driver not to talk me. I pretended I was going deaf. Wow, good plan. That uh, didn't work. He caught me hearing. <laughs> All right, it's terrible, but I'm not a terrible person. No. No, when I shoo squirrels away, I always say, get out of here. <laughs> I never, ever throw things at him and try to injure him like other people. That's nice. Yeah, and when I see priests in the street, I never, ever stare at him. And yet, I'm careful not to look away. See, because I want to make the freak feel comfortable. <laughs> Whatever you like. Oh, great. Thanks, Kramer. You got it. Hey, Jerry, do me a favor. 
The next time you see that Lions woman, ask her how those ball boys get those jobs. I would love to be able to do that. Kramer, I think perhaps you've overlooked one of the key aspects of this activity. It's ball boys, not ball men. There are no ball men. Yeah, I think he's right. I've never seen a ball man. Well, there ought to be ball men. All right, I'll talk to her. Do you want to be a ball man? Go ahead. Break the ball barrier. Hey. You know what? A friend of mine from work says that she saw George at the tennis match on TV yesterday. Yeah, yeah, me too. He was at the snack bar eating a hot fudge sundae. He had it all over his face. He's wearing that chocolate on his face like a beard, and it got in there really nice and tight. And he's... I'm sorry, George. But I don't understand. Things were going so great, but... What happened? Something must have happened. It's not you. It's me. You're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine? I invented it's not you, it's me. Nobody tells me it's them, not me. If it's anybody, it's me. Oh, George, it's you. You're damn right it's me. Look, I was just trying to get... I know what you were trying to do. Nobody does it better than me. I'm sure you do it very well. Yes, well, unfortunately, you'll never get the chance to find out. <laughs> but I thought things were going great. Yeah, so did I. Did she say why? No. She tried to give me the it's not you, it's me routine. <laughs> but that's your routine. <laughs> well, apparently words out. Hey, Georgie. I saw you on TV yesterday. Really? At the tennis court? Yeah, you were at the snack bar. You know how to put something? <laughs> Get out of here. I didn't see any cameras there. Oh, the camera was boom there. And the announcers, they made a couple of cracks about you. Cracks? What were they saying? But you had ice cream all over your face. They were talking about how funny you look. Maybe Gwen saw it. Maybe that's what did it. Well, I tell you, it wasn't a pretty sight. She loves to see me eating it on TV. So she sees you with hot fudge on your face and she ends it? Do you really think she'd be that superficial? Why not? I would be. Hello? Oh, hi, Dad. You saw him? Really? With the ice cream? All right, I'll talk to you later. But your parents saw me on TV? Yeah. This is a nightmare. Karma, how long was I? Felt like eight seconds. I heard you really inhaled that thing. Did anyone tape it? Can we move on? He thinks Gwen broke up with him because she saw him eating the ice cream on TV. Oh, come on. If she's that superficial, you don't want her. Yes, I do. So I guess you're not going to Todd's party on Friday. I can't now. Gwen's going to be there. Well, she should be the one that shouldn't go. Well, if a couple breaks up and they had plans to go to a neutral place, who withdraws? What's the etiquette? Excellent question. I mean, I think she should withdraw. She's the breaker. He's the breakee. He needs to get on with his life. I beg to differ. Really? He's the loser. Uh. She's the victor. Uh-huh. To the victor belong the spoil. Well, I don't care. I don't want to go anyway. I don't want to fight that traffic on Friday night. Well, we can take the car service from my office. Really? Yeah, they don't know. All right, I'll see you later. Okay.
particular episode. Even even the breakup, it's not you, it's me. If it's anyone, it's me. Meaning I have to be right. You, you, you're, you're so, you know, I'm, I'm more wrong than you even know. That's, that's the way he's justifying him, himself in that situation. And then, of course, where it all leads is him getting punched in the face. The confirmation bias that he, he knows he's got a low, a low view of himself. So when they say sweep, which is, you know, translated by the <laughs> Kramer as sleep, he bursts into the situation. He takes action emotionally. It is all emotional. And he goes in there and he accuses her of what he already, what he already knew, even though he's completely wrong. But it doesn't matter. Seinfeld is so great in that it makes such a farce of all of our attempts to justify ourselves. It, and, and this is not something that just Christians deal with. It's what anyone anywhere deals with. That the, and the, the only, not, not only do we, do we feel known in this, 
we are actually in a place where all of a sudden some, an, an understanding of being justified by someone else might sound like good news. This is, this is, Martin Luther says this about the law. He says, the law reveals guilt, fills the conscience with terror, and drives men to despair. Much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. The more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. George's attempt to defend himself makes the whole situation much worse. It makes him look silly. It makes him, it, it confirms her desire to break up with him. Right? The, operating on the deservedness scale, I'm either good enough or not good enough, fails. It only has the attempt of driving a person deeper into debt. I'm going to give a slightly more serious example now of uh, self-justification. Uh, the reason I keep talking about this is not, uh, again, not an intellectual exercise. It's because self-justification is what kills empathy. And empathy, as uh, a lot of us uh, believe, is, um, or Jonathan Franzen, the great writer, said that love is about bottomless empathy, born out of the heart's revelation that another person is every bit as real as you are. Self-justification, which seeks to say, I am right and you are wrong, or I, not, not just that you have done wrong, but that you are wrong. I am the right kind of person and you are the wrong kind of person. That that, you know, that in fact it, uh, implies that you are, there, there's no empathy. There's no, I'm just like you. I'm just operating out of the same things. It puts, it puts a huge distance between you. So self-justification is important not only because it informs so much of our silly motivations and ridiculous Costanza-isms, but because it kills love. I'm going to read to you from this book that has been really kind of important to me. Mistakes were made, but not by me. It is a catalog of how self-justification works. And it's really amazing. And I do, it, hey, it's for sale. Um, this is um, what self-justification looks like in a marriage. Where I'm going to read to you two accounts of the same episode. One from a, husband, a wife's perspective and the second one from a husband's perspective. This is a, a marriage of Deborah and Frank. Frank just plods through life, always taking care of business, preoccupied with getting his work done, but never showing much excitement or pain. He says his style shows how emotionally stable he is. I say it just shows he's passive and bored. In many ways, I'm just the opposite. I have a lot of ups and downs, but most of the time I'm energetic, optimistic, spontaneous. Of course I get upset, angry, and frustrated sometimes. He says this range of feelings shows I'm emotionally immature, that I have, quote, a lot of growing up to do. I think it just shows I'm human. I remember one incident that kind of sums up the way I see Frank. We went out to dinner with a charming couple who had just moved to town. As the evening wore on, I became more and more aware of how wonderful their life was. They seemed genuinely in love with one another, even though they had been married longer than we have. No matter how much the man talked to us, he always kept in contact with his wife, touching her or making eye contact with her, or including her in the conversation. And he used we a lot to refer to them. Watching them made me realize how little Frank and I touch, how rarely we look at each other, how separately we participate in conversation. 
Anyway, I admit it. I was envious of the other couple. They seemed to have it all. Loving family, beautiful home, leisure, luxury. What a contrast to Frank and me, struggling along, both working full-time jobs, trying to save money. I wouldn't mind that so much if only we worked at it together. But we're so distant. When we got home, I started expressing those feelings. I wanted to reevaluate our life as a way of getting closer. Maybe we couldn't be as wealthy as these people, but there was no reason we couldn't have the closeness and warmth they had. As usual, Frank didn't want to talk about it. When he said he was tired and wanted to go to bed, I got angry. It was Friday night and neither of us had to get up early the next day. The only thing keeping us from being together was his stubbornness. It made me mad. I was fed up with giving in to his need to sleep whenever I brought up an issue to discuss. <laughs> uh, I thought, why can't he stay awake just for me sometimes? I wouldn't let him sleep. When he turned off the lights, I turned them back on. When he rolled over to go to sleep, I kept talking. When he put a pillow over his head, I talked louder. He told me I was a baby. I told him he was insensitive. It escalated from there and got ugly. No violence, but lots of words. He finally went to the guest bedroom, locked the door, and went to sleep. The next morning, we were both worn out and distant. He criticized me for being so irrational, which was probably true. I do get irrational when I get desperate. But I think he uses that accusation as a way of justifying himself. It's sort of like, if you're irrational, then I could dismiss all your complaints, and I am blameless. This is Frank's version. Deborah never seems to be satisfied. I'm never doing enough, giving enough, never loving enough, never sharing enough. You name it, I don't do enough of it. I start feeling as though I've let her down, disappointed her, not met my obligations as a loving, supportive husband. But then I give myself a dose of reality. What have I done that's wrong? I'm an okay human being. People usually like me, respect me. I hold down a responsible job. I don't cheat on her or lie to her. I'm not a drunk or a gambler. I'm moderately attractive and I'm a sensitive lover. I even make her laugh a lot. Yet I don't get an ounce of appreciation from her. Just complaints that I'm not doing enough. I'm not thrown by events the way Deborah is. Her feelings are like a roller coaster. Sometimes up, sometimes down. I can't live that way. Nice, steady cruising speed is more my style. But I don't put Deborah down for being the way she is. I'm basically a tolerant person. People, including spouses, come in all shapes and sizes. They aren't tailored to fit your particular needs. So I don't take offense at little annoyances. I don't feel compelled to talk about every difference or dislike. I don't feel every potential area of disagreement has to be explored in detail. I just let things ride. When I show that kind of tolerance, I expect my partner to do the same for me. When she doesn't, I get furious. When Deborah picks at me about every detail that doesn't fit with her idea of what's right, I do react strongly. My cool disappears and I explode. I remember driving home with Deborah after a night out with an attractive, impressive couple we had just met. On the way home, I was wondering what kind of impression I'd made on them. I was tired that evening and not at my best. Sometimes I can be clever and funny in a small group, but not that night. Maybe I was trying too hard. Sometimes I have high standards for myself and get down on myself when I can't come up to them. I did not write this book. <laughs> Deborah interrupted my ruminations with a seemingly innocent question. Did you notice how much in tune those two were with each other? Now I know what's behind that kind of question. 
or at least where that kind of question will lead, it always leads right back to us, specifically to me. Eventually the point becomes, we aren't in tune with each other, which is code for, you're not in tune with me. I dread these conversations that chew over what's wrong with us as a couple because the real question, which goes unstated in civil conversations, but gets stated bluntly in the uncivil ones, is, what's wrong with Frank? So I sidestepped the issue on this occasion by answering that they were a nice couple. But Deborah pushed it. She insisted on evaluating them in comparison to us. They had money and intimacy. We had neither. Maybe we couldn't be wealthy, but we could at least be intimate. Why couldn't we be intimate? Meaning, why couldn't I be intimate? When we got home, I tried to diffuse the tension by saying I was tired and suggested that we go to bed. I was tired, and the last thing I wanted was one of these conversations. But Deborah was relentless. She argued there was no reason we couldn't stay up and discuss this. I proceeded with my bedtime routine, giving her the minimal of, most minimal of responses. If she won't respect my feelings, why should I respect hers? She talked at me while I put on my pajamas and brushed my teeth. She wouldn't even let me alone in the bathroom. When I finally got into bed and turned off the light, she turned it back on. I rolled over to go back to sleep, but she kept talking. You'd think she'd have gotten the message when I put the pillow over my head. But no, she pulled it off. At that point, I lost it. I told her she was a baby, a crazy person. I don't remember everything I said. Finally, in desperation, I went to the guest bedroom and locked the door. I was too upset to go to sleep right away. I didn't sleep at all. In the morning, I was still angry at her. I told her she was irrational. For once, she didn't have much to say. Have you taken sides? Who's right? Who's wrong? Is life a courtroom? Are we just making that up? We're not making it up. George Costanza illustrates it. Frank and Deborah illustrates it. I received a comment on the website a couple weeks ago where some guy said, not everything in life can be boiled down to our relationship with success and failure. Yes, it can. <laughs> Obviously it can. Or you're clearly not, you know. Um, This is the kind of self-justification that can erode a marriage or a friendship or a relationship, a parental child relationship. And it reflects an effort to protect not what we did, but who we are. I'm right and you're wrong. Or even if I'm wrong, too bad, that's the way I am. I am the right kind of person and you are the wrong kind of person. And because you are the wrong kind of person, you cannot appreciate my virtues. In fact, you think some of my virtues are my flaws. Isn't it interesting how we give ourselves credit for our good actions, but let the situation excuse the bad ones like Elaine. I'm a good person. When I shoot squirrels away, I say, hey, keep moving. And that is so funny. What was the other thing, the way she was justifying herself being a good person? She doesn't wear her hair up when she's at the movies so people can see over. I mean, pathetic, but so true. When we do something that hurts another person, we rarely say, I behave that way because I'm a cruel and heartless human being. We say, I was provoked. Anyone would do what I did. Or I had no choice. Yet, when we do something generous, helpful, or brave, we don't say we did it because we were provoked or drunk or had no choice, but because the guy on the phone guilt-induced us into donating to charity. We did it because we are generous and open-hearted. 
anyway. Because Frank and Deborah have become our, our lifelong experts at self-justification. They each blame the others on willingness to change on personality flaws, but excuse their own unwillingness to change based on their personality virtues. What does it look like to let down the walls of self-justification? Because I believe the Christian gospel, Jesus was not a self-justifier. The old gospel song goes, he didn't say a mumbling word when accused by Pilate. What would it look like to confront the reality and not the self-justifications? Here's the example that that, they give in Mistakes Were Made. At the age of 65, the feminist writer and activist Vivian Gornick wrote a dazzlingly honest essay about her lifelong efforts to balance work and love, to lead a life based on exemplary, egalitarian principles in both arenas. I'd written often about living alone because I couldn't figure out why I was living alone, she wrote. For years, her answer, the answer of so many of her generation, was sexism. Patriarchal men were forcing strong, independent women to choose between their careers and their relationships. And that's not wrong. That that happens, obviously. Sexism is real. But Gornick in this essay realizes that it was not the full answer. Looking back without the comfort of her familiar self-justifications, she talks about her own role in determining the course of her relationships. She said, Much of my loneliness, I realized, was self-inflicted, having more to do with my angry, self-divided personality than with sexism. The reality was that I was alone not because of my politics, but because I did not know how to live in a decent way with another human being. In the name of equality, I tormented every man who'd ever loved me until he left me. I called them on everything, never let anything go, held them up to accountability in ways that wearied us both. There was, of course, more than a grain of truth in everything I said. Self-justifications are often true. There's a basis. But those grains, no matter how numerous, need not have become the sandpile that crushed the life out of love. For her, loneliness had finally broken her to where she could see her self-justifications for what they were. An exhausting, exhaustive, uh, closed circle that excluded other people and killed empathy and love. And isn't that essentially how we treat ourselves? Are you the sort of person who internally calls you out on everything? Who never lets anything go? Who holds yourself up to an accountability in ways that wearies you? Well, that's where the Christian gospel meets you. This is precisely the condition that the cross addresses. Life as an impasse, rife with suffering, self-inflicted trauma by people who are compulsively self-justifying. The cross both acknowledges the depth of the problem that Jesus had to die, rather than papering over it with platitudes. And you know what? In this light, I I don't know about you, but I feel known. 
We feel known by the depth of this issue. So, when we read what David Brooks has to say about emotions being the main uh, engine of our lives and the core emotional drive being one of self-justification and law. Remember, self-justification is the language of the law. Deservedness, rights. When we're in that realm, we are in the realm of the gospel. That the idea that our will, that ourselves, that we are limited profoundly, evokes compassion. How can you not be compassionate for that woman in that, in that situation where she has crushed the life out of love? My father, in one of my favorite passages of Grace and Practice, says that one of the reasons we need to embrace the fact of the unfree will, meaning that you and I are emotional creatures driven by a need to self-justify that we cannot get rid of, is for the sake of its effect on love. A benefit of the unfree will is that it increases mercy in daily relationships and decreases judgment. Forms of Christianity that stress free will create refugees. They get into the business of judging, especially of judging Christians. It is judgment that drives people away from Christianity. Ironically, it is judgment, the absence of it, which drew people to Christ. Reynolds Price, the southern writer, put it a different way. He said, the whole point of learning about the human race, presumably, is to give it mercy. You are just like me. Frank and Deborah are exactly alike. They are both viewing the other's personality flaws, or what the other person sees as flaws, as their virtues, and vice versa. Now, the word of the gospel that's very unequivocal and very true and very real, and the, the thing that we hang our hat on, is this doctrine of justification. Paul writes, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. And later on in Romans, he says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Justification by faith. That we are justified by God. That who we... What it, we don't ask the question, what it is about me that God would love? We ask the question, what it is about God that would love me? That key shift from, from works to faith is the key shift in the, in the Bible. The one that takes us beyond deserving, as Paul so brilliantly talked about. It is the beginning of rest. The justification, Christ not only came to fulfill the law, but he is the end of the law. God no longer relates to us on the basis of our self-justifications. Some people might say, well, isn't this an example of confirmation bias? Aren't you just reading the Bible and seeing what you want to see? No. It confirms confirmation bias. It, 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 it counts. This is the, the, Christian, the New Testament accounts for self-justification. It resolves it. It confirms it. And it addresses it.
God relates to us, not according to our doing, but our being. In other words, he loves us. He empathizes. The workers in the vineyard. Grace. Justification by faith allows us to let go of the self-justifications that cover up our mistakes, that protect our desires to do things just the way we want to, and that minimizes the hurts we inflict on those we love. This can be embarrassing and painful. Without self-justification, we might be left standing emotionally naked, unprotected in a pool of regrets and losses. Or as my favorite all-time Onion article says, Heartfelt grudge robs man of uh, heartfelt apology robs man of cherished grudge. <laughs> a powerful, enduring grudge was ruined for local resident Roger Chilton Saturday, following a profoundly earnest plea for forgiveness from longtime friend Peter Scotto. I was looking forward to harboring this bitter resentment for at least another decade, gosh darn it. And now he's taken that away from me, a deflated Chilton lamented, recalling how Scotto had selfishly revealed his innermost vulnerabilities during a deeply emotional apology. The worst part is he was completely and unequivocally remorseful, that bastard. (laughs) Chilton told reporters he was so upset over having to give up the grudge that he vowed never to forgive Scotto for such a brave and honest act. Grudge holding, proving, losing ground, gaining ground. Life is a courtroom. So when we read the parable of the workers in the vineyard, when we talk about that, we hear about God who is, who is unjust or who is merciful, who does not care about what people think that he should do and doesn't seem, seem to have much regard for the religious box that we put him in. And that's good news. His mercy transcends his justice. As Dylan, Bob Dylan says, Jesus is our merciful friend who does not relate to us on the basis of our self-justifications, but on the basis of his. And as a result, the entire scale of deservedness has been dismantled. Paul's going to talk a little bit more about that after lunch. But I'm going to close with a little quote from Martin Luther that appeared on our website somewhat recently. The article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly and to believe it with all our heart. I don't know about your... I know it's true of this church, but every single week we believe that you need to hear this message that God relates to you not on the basis of your deeds or your attributes, but on the basis of His. That we need to hear it incessantly. That's what the pulpit is for. It's not for anything else. The world brands this a pernicious doctrine. The world advances free will, the rational and natural approach of good works, as the means of obtaining the forgiveness of sin. But it is impossible to gain peace of conscience by the methods and means of the world. Experience proves this. If you don't believe me, we've cataloged it online. Various holy orders have been launched for the purpose of securing peace of conscience through religious exercises. But they have proved failures because such devices only increase doubt and despair. We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word of grace.
Amen.